Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Вообще-то мы собрались сегодня все для того, чтобы поговорить о том, что никогда не следует... Well, judging by your reaction, I can tell that you probably didn't get a word of what I just said, did you? Now, what I have just said was this. I said, never underestimate the importance of local knowledge. And we have just, in fact, learned a lesson to just how important the local knowledge might be, because when I was speaking the Russian language, you did not understand me, did you? No. But when I switched to the English language, the language that you all spoke locally here, you understood me, didn't you? Well, hence the importance of the local knowledge. As long as we have some of the local knowledge in common, say, we know a local language. We gain something. We have just gained this ability to even communicate with each other, right? Right. Well, you still want to have more of the local knowledge in place because, say, depending on your location, you may very well miscommunicate even if you use a common local language. Well, take a perfectly English word, football, for example. You say football in the States, and this is what the Americans mean by that, right? Well... You go to New Zealand and you say football, and New Zealanders by football mean rugby. Well, here in the UK, this is what you mean by football, right? Well, so you have to know more of the local knowledge to be able to communicate properly, correct? Right, well, some people like us, we gain this ability to even communicate which, with each other properly when we exploit that concept. But some people, like bankers, gain a lot of money on just that concept. I mean, take this HSBC bank. They started in Britain, and then they went worldwide. They claim themselves to be the world's local bank. And I want you to see a video clip that they shot. Here it is. A football in the UK isn't the same as a football in the USA. This Texan horns gesture is a celebration. But in Italy, it would be rather an insult. 
Red here signals bad luck for the player sent off, at least. Red here in China is lucky. These envelopes contain money. At HSBC, we never underestimate the importance of local knowledge, particularly when it comes to your money, because what we learn in one country can directly benefit our customers in another. HSBC, the world's local. Well, you heard them saying, at HSBC, we never underestimate the importance of local knowledge, particularly when it comes to your money. And that is exactly the concept I want you to keep in mind when you consider giving to a mission. Make sure that the mission is local enough to be able to handle the job locally. But don't you think it was the bank which invented this whole concept of the importance of local knowledge because Jesus Christ himself practiced just that approach while a nurse in flesh. I mean, take a look at this map, if you would. This is the map of the Palestine of the time of Jesus, and you see the Jordan River parting one side from the other side. And we, of course, know that uh, Jesus was born in a little town of Bethlehem. And then he was brought to Jerusalem to be shown to a priest, and then it became unsafe for the family to remain in the area, and they fled to Egypt that way. And then, of course, they returned back to uh, the uh, land, and they resided in the town of Nazareth. Now, uh, when Jesus grew up to the age of about 30, he made a trip to the Jordan River, where he was baptized by John, and from there, he went to uh, the wilderness, where he was tempted by Satan. And there, he went back to Nazareth and uh, made a couple of trips to Nine and to Sychar, did all kinds of miracles, and then went to the town of Capernaum. Now, it was in the town of Capernaum that he called his first disciples. And together with the disciples, he was traveling all over the area of Galilee, proclaiming the good news. Now, eventually, they made it back to the shore of the lake. And that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go over to the other side. That's what he told them. Let us go over to the other side. Now, we all know that the Bible is the Word of God, right? Right? Oh, good. Good start. So, whatever's in the Bible has got to have some utmost importance to it then, correct? Right. So, you tell me then what the utmost importance of this little phrase, let us go over to the other side, is, since this little phrase made its way into the Bible. Can you tell well, just by looking at the map, you can tell that Jesus hasn't been to the other side as of yet, which is already a big deal, isn't it? But think about it this way. There were, in fact, way many more differences between this side and the other side than there's just that. I mean, take the matter of healing the sick. For example, on Jesus' side, those who were sick were sick, but they were sort of a kind of a peacefully sick. I mean, there was this man with a withered hand, and there was a, a leper whom Jesus cleansed, and there was uh, Simon's mother-in-law who had that fever, and they were sick, all right, but uh, they weren't like demon-possessed or anything. Now, Jesus goes over to the other side, and when Jesus um, got out of the boat, immediately out of the 
tombs, there was a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now, wouldn't you say he was kind of different on the other side? Sure, big time. I mean, take the matter of Jesus' popularity, for example. On Jesus' side, his popularity was growing all the time. I mean, at first, they didn't have a room and a house big enough to hold all the followers uh, of Jesus who wanted to see Jesus performing miracles on the sick. So they had to take the roof of the house out to bring yet another rather peaceful palace again. Well, eventually, the crowd who wanted to hear him preach grew so big that there was no square big enough in the town to hold all the followers of Jesus and so Jesus had to move away from the town to preach uh, in the streets, outside, in the fields. But eventually, the crowd of Jesus' followers grew so big that Jesus had to get onto a boat so that the crowd would not crush him. Now, Jesus goes over to the other side and casts out a legion of demons from that man into a herd of swine, and he sends the herd into the lake, and the herd drowns. Do you think that made the locals happy with Jesus? But of course not. I mean, first of all, they lost everything they had. And second, and the Bible is plain clear about it, it says they were afraid. And so I just love the way the Bible puts it. So mildly, it says, they began to plead with Jesus to leave the region. Now, we all know what that meant. I mean, they wanted Jesus out of the picture. Now, get out, basically. That's what he that is a response from them. Now, probably the most fascinating difference between this side and the other side lays in the fact that on Jesus' side, when somebody would finally recognize who Jesus was, the Messiah, the Son of God, God himself in flesh, Jesus would always tell that person, please do not tell anyone who I am. My time hasn't come yet. Now, Jesus goes over to the other side and meet such a hostile response on the part of the locals that Jesus, in fact, totally changes his strategy. Look what the Bible says about it. As uh, Jesus was getting into the boat to go back to his side, that is, uh, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him that uh, he might be with him. But Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. You see, when Jesus encountered such a hostile response at the part of the locals, he delegated the responsibility for spreading the gospel over at the other side to that man, a local guy. Well, Jesus does go back to his side and visits a couple of uh, cities along and then goes over to the other side once again. And a huge crowd of 5,000 men plus women plus children is there waiting for Jesus for three days. And Jesus feeds them with both the word of life and the bread of life. Now you tell me who told them that Jesus was coming again. Ah, Look no further. The local guy did. 
Apparently, he was local enough to be able to handle the job beautifully well. And so, the 5,000 men plus children plus women were a direct output, a fruit of Jesus partnering with the local with regard to spreading the gospel over at the other side. Right. You may say, well, fine, it might work with bankers, and it certainly works with Jesus. Mind you, everything works with Jesus. But what does it have to do with us? Well, it does because not much has been changed, uh, not in that regard anyway, since the time of Jesus. They had the Jordan River parting one side from the other side. Well, we have the Atlantic Ocean parting you from us in the Soviet Union. In fact, whatever country you go to, the country that sends missionaries, uh, there is always a huge divider between them and us in the Soviet Union. But people know of the example that Jesus gave to us in the Bible with regard to uh, doing mission overseas. Because Jesus, in a sense, was the first missionary overseas when he went over to the other side. And so... They sent missionaries. In fact, I know of a person who started abroad and went to uh, the Soviet Union, and of all the people there, he got in touch with this crazy guy. This is me. This is how I looked some 35 years ago. This was the only picture ever taken of me in the uniform. I was not supposed to wear the uniform. I was a KGB agent. I was supposed to be undercover at all times. Now, it was the KGB which executed 20 million civilians in Russia. They started with the uh, Bolsheviks' revolution in 1917 and ended with Gorbachev's perestroika in 1987. 20 million civilians dead, 200,000 ministers executed, and 500,000 put to prison. Were those uh, 500,000 church leaders eventually died out of natural causes, if you know what I mean. I mean, they would put you to work at some nuclear plant with no protection, or would force you to work outside in Siberia under freezing temperatures naked. Uh, starvation would be considered a natural cause. The KGB dynamited 40,000 churches. It was just so bad. So the question is, why did I even work for an institution like that? And the answer is real simple. Money. They paid me five times better than average. You know, for that kind of money, I'd do anything. For you to get a glimpse of just how I felt, recall whatever you have. And I mean your income, pensions, savings, houses, cars, everything, multiplied by five, and see how it feels. Be honest now. Does it feel good? Does it? Yeah, it does. That's how I felt. And if I had moral remorses about what I did for the KGB, I could always come up with a good excuse for doing the wrongs. My best excuse, of course, being, well, I have to provide for my family. And it was my family which set me up one day, big time. My daughter, she was nine years of age. She came from school and she said, that she had made a new friend. And she claimed that the father of the new friend was a Christian missionary from abroad. And I looked straight into her eyes and I said, you better be kidding, girl. I mean, think about it my way. She said he was a Christian. And I was, of course, a member of the Communist Party. I was an atheist, therefore. I claimed there was no God. She said that he was a Christian missionary. And I was, of course, a KGB agent. You know, in my eyes, all these missionaries were spies 
who were trying to infiltrate my country, and I had to take care of those. And she said that she was um, um, a Christian missionary from abroad, and I was, of course, a proud product of the Soviet Union, so I thought we needed no help from abroad whatsoever. And, and, I, and I got so disappointed with my own daughter that I didn't believe her. Instead, I went to her school, and I talked with her teacher, only the teacher confirmed that there was, in fact, a couple from abroad, and the teacher also said that the couple was looking for a Russian tutor, which almost devastated me, because, as we say back in Russia, up in heavens, everybody is going to speak the Russian language, because it takes eternity to learn it. <laughs> yeah, we laugh at it now. Believe me, I wasn't at the moment, because that very moment, I realized they were not tourists, as I had hoped they were, but came to stay. And that, of course, made me even more concerned with the situation. And being a KGB agent, I felt myself obligated to investigate the case, and I did, by recalling the fact that Natasha, my wife, just happened to be a professional uh, Russian as a second language instructor. She taught, she taught all the military officers who were coming to Russia from third world countries uh, to get trained in military operations at the military academia, only to do so they would have to go through a very rigorous course on the Russian language by immersion, a year-long course too, so that then they could take classes at the military academia in Russian. So my wife did that for a living, and I, of course, utilized that to my advantage. I made my wife teach the missionaries, and that gave me a chance to spy over the family. I would just go there, and I would just sit there at their place, pretending that I was there to wait until my wife would get through with her lesson, whereas, in fact, I was there to listen to what they were talking about. And frankly, all they talked about was God. They, they wanted my wife to use the Bible as their textbook, and all they wanted to learn was how to say the Lord in Russian, and how to say, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, in Russian, and how to say, and whosoever believeth on him will not perish, but have everlasting life, in Russian. So in about a half a year of just listening to that stuff, I got converted. Well, <laughs> at, at least in my head I did, because in my head I gave God a chance to even exist, which for me, a KGB agent, was a huge step away from my atheistic realm. Now, the missionaries from abroad, they were not just talkative about God, they were pretty pushy about God. So, in some half a year, after my first conversion, they pushed me into reading the Bible business. You know, they made me read the Bible. Now, I had no idea how to read the Bible. So, I decided I would start with the Gospels. And I read the Gospels, and I read the Gospels, and I read the Gospels, until I ran into a portion of the Gospel of Luke, the portion depicting Jesus talking with his disciples. And among other things, Jesus tells them this. He says, If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, then how much more so will the Holy Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? And I was just dumbfounded right there, because that very moment I realized that Jesus knew me better than I thought. Because the first part of what Jesus was saying applied to me perfectly well. I mean, I knew I was an evil man. I was a KGB agent. But I also knew how to give good gifts to my child. And that made me think. I was thinking, man, 
if the first part of what Jesus is saying applies to me this well, then what is the rest of what Jesus is saying applies to me as well? And basically, I put God to a test. I followed the simple guidelines of the scripture and I asked the Father of the Spirit and bang! I looked up and I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord just as clearly as I'm seeing you now. Only the Lord was standing and the Lord was putting down the Holy Spirit right inside of me. And I was filled up with the Holy Spirit of God all the way to the top. Now that was my conversion by heart because in my heart I knew Jesus was God. I saw him. Now, I go back home and this is how I look. My wife meets me in the door and she says, what's wrong with you? I said, what's wrong with me, honey? She said, you're smiling. <laughs> well, you see, I have never smiled before. Um, if you worked for the KGB, you wouldn't smile either, believe me. Now, my wife married me because her uh, father, a KGB colonel himself, never smiled either. And so my wife honestly thought it wasn't even proper for a man to ever smile. Well, Jesus made me smile that day, and of course, my smile gave me away. And since I was a baby in Christ, I didn't find anything more suitable than to tell my wife that I became a Christian now. Now, she in turn confessed to me that she had become a Christian even earlier than I did, only she was scared to, to talk about it with her husband, a, a KGB agent. And so, there we were, complete babies in Christ. I mean, frankly, we had no idea what to do with it. None whatsoever. So we decided we would read a little bit more of the Bible because we thought, after all, it was the Bible which got us all started on that track, which we did, only to find out that those who were um, converted uh, through Jesus Christ would then plant a church. We also did, we said, and we planted a church in Moscow, Russia, and I was still a KGB agent on active duty. Well, then I had my third conversion. You see, I had three. One by head, one by heart, and one by guts. Because one day, I learned by my guts what the call of the Lord on my life was. And the call was to replenish the lost. Well, with all of its simplicity, let me decipher it for you. For me, a KGB agent, that meant to train 200,000 ministers that the KGB executed and plant 40,000 churches that the KGB dynamite. I, I, that was a daunting task. I had no idea. What I did realize with the call was that there was no way I could keep both my faith and my job because they were in a sheer contradiction with each other. So I decided I would quit one or the other. Now, of course, I couldn't quit my faith because I saw Jesus. And I couldn't quit the KGB either, because you don't quit the KGB just like that. You know, in my days, the only two reasons on the basis of which you could quit the KGB were you could either go cuckoo or drop dead. <laughs> and frankly, none of the options I quite liked. Um, so I decided I'd wait. And I waited. And I waited, and I waited, until an opportunity represented itself. You might remember those days, uh, Perestroika, Glasnost, right. In those days, this idea of doing free enterprise was introduced to Russia by foreigners. And Russians just loved it. It felt new, afresh, so everybody thought he or she would do free enterprise. 
So the push from within the Russian society was so huge that even the KGB had to respond to it, and they did, by introducing yet the third reason, uh, allowing KGB agents to swap their jobs. The reason being doing free enterprise. Only if you opted for that reason, you had to prove that the free enterprise that you claimed you'd be doing would pay you better than the KGB, which of course was a joke. I mean, nobody could beat the KGB on the money. It was rather a trick designed to prevent KGB agents from fleeing. But God was greater than that. There was a man who accepted Jesus Christ in the very church that we planted, and he just happened to be the president of a corporation. And I shared my concern with him, and he, in return, wrote me a nice little letter on the letterhead of his company. He signed it and everything. I mean, it looked official. Basically, the letter was saying that the company was offering me a job much better paid than the KGB. And, of course, I knew just a number to quote. And so, with that letter, I went to the KGB, showed them the letter, and asked if they could beat the deal. And they couldn't. And so they let me go. Now, I never worked for that company. They didn't pay me either, but for some good four years, as we were substituting the cross uh, the, the hammer and the sickle with the uh, cross and the crown through the church, they were covering me with that letter until it became more or less safe, and then they rather ruthlessly fired me, and the church hired me on the spot. So I made my transition, but then the call remained the same, and so to do it by the way of multiplication, we planted the Moscow Evangelical Christian Seminary, because we reckoned you could invest in a hundred of students and plant hundred churches at once. Well, we did, only to find out that there were no teachers, because everybody who knew anything about the Bible or church planting was executed by the KGB. So we decided we would follow Jesus' example with regard to going over to the other side and send some of our prospective leaders to uh, the locations where the uh, knowledge with regard to the Bible and church planting was available locally. And so they sent me to... Uh, over to the other side, to the States first. I got my Master of Divinity there, uh, returned back, started uh, teaching my own people in the vernacular. Then the seminary sent me over to the other side, now to Scotland. I got my PhD in Biblical Studies at the University of St. Andrews. Went over to the other side, once again became principal of the Moscow Seminary. So I have been following Jesus' example with regard to going over to the other side, my whole life in Christ. And so I want you to do the same. I want you to go over to the other side and partner with the Moscow Seminary. Now, why with the Moscow Seminary? Why was not some other institution of learning or mission out there? Well, because the Moscow Seminary is as local as it gets. It can handle the job locally. And I have facts to back up my claim. Take a look at this picture, if you would. This is the picture of the first principal of the Moscow Seminary, Reverend Alexei Puchkov. And this is, of course, Billy Graham, who in his book writes this. The General Secretary of the Protestants in the Soviet Union, the Reverend Alexei Buchkov, had met with me in Hungary in 1977 and since then had worked diligently with the Russian Orthodox Church and the government to gain an invitation for us. Notice, Billy 
was a smart man. Billy knew his Bible inside and out. Billy knew that for him to be successful over at the other side, he would have to come up with a man who was local enough to be able to work with both the Russian Orthodox Church and the government to even gain an invitation for Billy. But our first principle happened to be just that. I mean, take a look at this picture, if you would. You see Dr. Graham sitting right in the middle of the table with the headphones on, and the uh, Russian Orthodox Patriarch with a funny hat right next to him. But look who's sitting right next to Billy over at the other side. That's the first principle of the Moscow Seminary, who happened to be local enough to bring Billy to Russia. And you know how much effect that produced. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of Russians accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, take a look at this picture, if you would. This is the second precedent of uh, the uh, Moscow Seminary principle. And uh, he was hugely famous for the fact that he managed to publish this very uh, Christian magazine in 2,000 copies, uh, four times a year, in the, uh, even under the communists. And he was also the pastor of the only uh, Protestant church which was allowed to exist under the communists in Moscow, a city of nine million people. You think it takes a little bit of local knowledge to be able to handle a project like that? Surely. But let me tell you something about that man. His father was shot in the head by a KGB agent, simply because his father happened to be a church minister. Now think how much faith it then took on the part of that man to become a minister himself. But think how much more faith it took on the part of that very man to then publicly bless me, a convert out of the KGB, to become his successor in the role of the principal of the Moscow Seminary. But he did. And so I became the third principal of the Moscow Seminary, and I'm, of course, young and excited. The problem with me, though, as this report is saying, the communists tortured and killed 200,000 clergy in the Soviet Union and destroyed 40,000 churches. Is that a problem? Yeah. And so by wearing this red color CCCP, the hammer on the sickle, big star, a t-shirt, I'm making two statements here. Well, first of all, I'm a local to the land of Russia. I'm a Russian citizen. I live in Moscow. I know how things work there. And second, I owe to Russia. I owe 200,000 ministers to be trained and 40,000 churches to be planted, to replenish the lost. Well, I do it, of course, through the Moscow Seminary. And uh, the Moscow Seminary is a local uh, school in the sense that we do not have students from uh, Ireland, we do not have students from Brazil, from India, from America. Uh, we only train those who speak the Russian language, which is basically the uh, Soviet Union, because everybody there would speak the Russian language. Now, when I say we are a local school, mind you that Russia alone is 11 time zones. It is officially the largest country on the planet. Well, it's a pretty good local school, big size. Now, we train both uh, boys and girls, and some of them would love to share their vision with you. Here it is. I would like to launch an Alpha course and then grow a church out of it. Then to become a pastor of the church, and then to plant churches all over Russia, basically. God called me to be a pastor. So when I graduate from the seminary, I will become a pastor. God gave me a vision 
to open a Christian family style orphanage. I want to be a missionary to preach in Siberia and to train people who would take the word of God in further on, all the way to the far east of Russia. After I graduate from the seminary, I want to return to Belarus to evangelize and to proclaim the truth of the Lord to my native people. I have graduated from the Moscow Evangelical Christian Seminary. And now I am a pastor of a our church. That's all we do. We plant about 30 churches at any given moment all over Russia. And of course, the seminary grew to 324 full-time uh, student ministers. And this is how we do it. We pray with them. We have a class, say, on the Gospels. And then uh, we uh, wash each other's uh, Fit. Because you cannot be a Christian in theory. You have got to be a Christian in practice. This is a seminary where the head and the heart go hand in hand. And so this is the building that the seminary owns. And we agree the building very soon. That much of a demand for uh, training we had at the seminary. And so I guess we were so used to the idea of having an underground church then what when we outgrew the facility, instead of building it up, we dug it down. So we got the basement, we have the license officially granted to us by the Ministry of Education to train Christian ministers and religious personnel for the church. Everybody on staff and on the faculty is a Russian. What we do not have is money. Now, it costs me uh, 900 pounds a year, I mean fluoride, to train a Christian minister in Russia. Is that a big sum of money or not? Well, I mean, it depends. It's a good chunk. But think about it this way. How much would I pay to send somebody to the School of Divinity of the University of St. Andrews to study? And I mean full ride. Tuition, room and board, transportations, insurance, books, everything. How much? <laughs> $20,000 a year. Easily. Probably more. Well, compared to that, you know, nine. 100 pounds a year is what? A 20 times better deal. But the problem that I have with the idea of sending somebody uh, abroad to study is that try sending 10 abroad to study. You will be lucky if one comes back. They get in, they get comfortable. They never come back to Russia. So in my view, uh, 900 pounds a year is a better deal. It's 20 times uh, less and 10 times more um, secure. So, Jesus did it that way. He went over to the other side, parted with the local, and it brought forth a great fruit of 5,000 men plus women plus children. Partner with the Moscow Seminary, and you will have your reward 30, 60, or 100 fold. Bear still. Those guys don't need passport, they don't need visa, they speak the Russian language, they know the local culture, and they will be there even if the Iron Curtain comes back. I encourage you, grab a brochure, drop me a line, every brochure has my email, leave me your name on a sign-up sheet for the Moscow Seminary. There are plenty of those. I will hook you up with a student for you to support. Partner with the Moscow Seminary. It is as local as it gets. Let us go over to the other side. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit 
www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.